Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Andy Leslie, former Liberal MP and retired Canadian Forces Lieutenant General. In a 35-year career in the Forces, he served for four years as the Chief of the Land Staff and as a Member of Parliament, Andy held the role of Chief Government Whip. That's the role that I first came to know him in, and I spent a considerable amount of time on his couch in that office. But the main focus of our discussion today is Russia's unprovoked and unconscionable war of aggression and attack on Ukraine. Now, Canada has helped, in some ways, to lead global efforts to levy serious and targeted sanctions against Putin, his inner circle, and key financial institutions. We've contributed hundreds of millions in economic support, and we are throwing open our borders to help. We are also providing military support, albeit limited by existing capacity on that front. And as you'll hear from the former commander of the Canadian Army, much more must be done to increase that capacity, and it can and should be done now. Andy, thanks for joining me. Good to see you. It, it is good to see you. It's, it's been too long. And unfortunately, we are connecting and I reached out under more challenging circumstances. I've seen you speak in the media a number of times now, and rightly so, given your experience on the conflict in Ukraine and, and the war of aggression. And Canadians, certainly in my community, but I think across the country, feel a, a bit at a loss as to how can we help more? Is there a way for us to help more? I saw the Prime Minister speak to heartbreaking decisions that had to be made. In your view, with the experience you've got, is there anything more for us to do in this circumstance that we're not doing right now? Yeah, actually, there's a couple of things. Um, so I'll start not at the beginning, but at a point in a journey, a journey into darkness. Uh, Putin, in my opinion, is a sociopath. Um, he's long held ambitions to reunite uh, the republics of the former USSR. And uh, as you know, this is not his first time that he sent troops to occupy the sovereign territory of Ukraine. But it took him about four months to build up the 200,000 invading Russian soldiers and the tens of thousands of heavy armored vehicles with which he's conducting the current attack, which, by the way, is not going well for him or for Russia. The resistance of the Ukraine fighters is magnificent. In that four months, uh, NATO and uh, they elected leaders of all the states that make up NATO, including Canada, had an opportunity to assess what was going on. And quite frankly, in my opinion, they didn't pay a lot of attention to those who were saying, look out, you don't hold an exercise with 100 or 200,000 soldiers. It's got to be something more, and this could be another invasion. So as a result, NATO was caught unprepared. They didn't have four deployed aircraft. They didn't have four deployed anti-aircraft systems. They didn't have four deployed troops to protect the east flank of NATO. Those six countries that border up against what will or might hope it doesn't, but it might end up being the border with the Ukraine and Baltic states. Will Putin win? I sincerely hope not. And what does win mean anyways? Will he occupy the entirety of Ukraine? Well, not if the Ukraine people, some of whom were just like you, members of parliament, you know, four weeks, three weeks ago, and now they're carrying an anti-tank system and hunting main battle tanks full of Russian troops uh, in the woods outside Kiev. Very successfully, I might add. I don't think he will, but he might. And that we've got to plan on the worst case. In the worst case, then, we've got a rabid bear that's roaring around on these flank of NATO. So let's get some troops there to protect ourselves and protect our NATO partners. Because what happens over there can have an impact at home. If the Russian bear doesn't succeed and he's beaten back, 
then we'll have an angry Russian bear lurking around on the eastern flank of Ukraine. And this is not going to go away, even if Putin does. And should it all go to down the toilet, and should something horrific happen between now and over the next couple of weeks, for, for example, nuclear chemical weapons, which is hopefully, it's possible, but hopefully not probable, but it's something you have to factor in in terms of worst case planning, then we're still going to have the requirement for ground troops, air troops, and naval assets to watch essentially what's happening with the remnants of the Russian state, should it come to that. So what can we do? Uh, we have sent a paltry amount of weapons. Quite frankly, we refused to send the weapons for four or five years before the attack started, which I find embarrassing. I find disheartening. And I can't believe that, that we chose not to provide them with uh, lethal weapons, well, with lethal supplies, considering that there was an ongoing war that's that's been brewing with casualties for, for quite some time. So that's point number one. Point number two is um, we have to get our own troops over there into probably Latvia, where we already have five or 600. And the reason why we have to do this is for the three scenarios of our outline two. We could do more to provide them weapons. We sent them a, you know, a couple of boxes of old rifles and pistols to start with. That's after the attack started. That's when I got there. Then we sent them some 45-year-old uh, anti-tank systems. We could probably do better, but actually the Canadian Army doesn't have better. We're going to talk about that in a couple of sets. Yeah, we, we will definitely talk about that because, and I should take a step back and say, Canada is throwing open its doors to refugees that are, and Ukrainians that are fleeing that, that may not be formally UN-approved refugees just yet, but we're throwing open our doors to people fleeing Ukraine we are, there's been financial assistance. There's been, as you say, a, a much smaller amount of military assistance. And, and I do want to get into the weeds a little bit on that and, and talk about the capacity of our country to send that kind of assistance. And the bigger question around NATO's role here, and, and I take your point, we've got to make sure we're prepared for the worst case scenario and, 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 and embrace the value of deterrence to make sure our forces are there and, and we're part and NATO is there to say, you can't go further if they are, if Russia is more successful than we'd like to see in, in Ukraine. We had Zelensky come to our parliament and he said, please close our skies. And we had, then Zelensky went to the US Congress and he said, I have a dream. I, I don't have a dream. You, we, Martin Luther King had a dream. I have a need and my need is to close the skies. And and yet NATO earlier this week said that's not on the table. And you, I think, even have said this would further risk World War III. And so if you're in the government's shoes here in Canada as a member of NATO, that should not be on the table in your view. Well, it's it's of strategic interest. And of course, it's of dramatic interest to the president of Ukraine and the brave people in the Ukraine who are fighting essentially alone despite all the great speeches and platitudes and all the statements that we've got your back, let's be clear here, the Ukraine people right now, they may get support from others, but they are conducting the fight. And because NATO isn't ready, not only are they fighting for their own hearth and home, and their families, but they're also fighting for us in a way because we're not yet ready. We're starting, we being NATO are starting to deploy. We could do more, uh, but who's we? We can't contribute to a no-fly zone. Our aircraft are 35 to 40 years old. 
it's the anti-aircraft systems and the more modern fighters which will savage our aircraft and knock them out of the skies. Unfortunately, I'm sure they'll die bravely, but there's not much we can do. We don't have any surface-to-air anti-aircraft systems. When I say any, we don't zero. We're the only army that I know of in the world that doesn't have any ground-based air defense system. By the way, a program for just that has been sitting on the minister's desk for seven years. And even if we had that capacity, you've got the NATO Secretary General saying, we see death, we see destruction, we see human suffering in Ukraine, but this can become even worse if NATO took actions that actually turn this into a full-fledged war between NATO and Russia. I think that's the right read of the situation. I oh, it, is in, it is in part. It is in part. So NATO has informed, sorry, Russia has informed NATO that if he sees aircraft flying over, NATO aircraft flying over the Ukraine, he'll consider that an act of war. So that makes it fairly clear. That's a, that's a sharp line, not in the sand, but in concrete. And NATO is not yet ready to fight a war with Russia for the reasons that I've stated. Deterrence hasn't worked. Putin wouldn't have done the attack unless he thought he could win. So that means NATO, when it mattered most, failed in deterrence. And after this is over, if we're still around, I suggest we all have a long, hard look. This whole idea of cashing in peace dividends and spending it on social programs, by all means, do some of that, but you got to achieve balance. And obviously, we haven't. Now, this war is not our fault. It's Putin's fault. And it's the fault of those in the tanks and the fighters that are bombing and killing innocent Ukraine civilians. But to do a no-fly zone, you've got to have aircraft in the sky and you've got to have things to go after the surface-to-air missiles that occupy all the space around the Russian battlegrounds. Probably the most densely populated air defense zone now in the world. And that's where the majority of our aircraft, and we can only contribute about six or seven, uh, would unfortunately not fare well. We don't have any, any anti-aircraft systems to send to Ukraine, which other nations are doing, either Stinger missiles or refurbished older Soviet ones or more modern NATO ones. And we can't contribute to that. Sure. And by the way, our GDP is the same size as Russia's. And I, I do want to go down this rabbit hole of military spending, and you've mentioned a couple of times. So my last question on the no-fly zone is only, I understand my understanding of the situation and from NATO's comments, but also from some of the expert comments I've seen is that it would lead to direct conflict with as right. between NATO and Russia, the conflict and risk nuclear war. My, my only question on this and that you are more expert in this, this subject matter, but the commercial litigation lawyer in me thinks leverage is everything and don't take anything off the table. So even if you don't plan to go somewhere don't take anything off the table because that shows your hand a little too clearly to, to, to your opponent. Do you think we, we were too early on saying we weren't going to go there as far as NATO? Or do you think it, it was obvious to everyone watching that we weren't going to go there so it makes no difference? I think under every other circumstances that I've been either involved in or have studied as a professional soldier over the years in which no-fly zones have been imposed, not once has there ever been a nuclear power who is the recipient of a no-fly zone being imposed on them, ever, obviously. So now that we're dealing with Russia, which, as you know, has a wide, a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons and chemicals, um, and you're dealing with a character who thinks he's a genius but actually isn't, a sociopath, in my opinion, um, and he's not a good soldier at all, the one may think he is. So he attacked during the muddy season, which stalled his vehicles 
on these roads or canalize them onto the roads. You overestimated the competence of these generals. You overestimated the competence of the soldiers. You overestimated the competence of his equipment. He underestimated the spirit of the authorities in Ukraine to resist. He underestimated the Ukrainian soldiers and the, those who were civilians mere weeks before. He also underestimated the will of NATO. So when you've got a, a guy, a thug, who's made seven or eight or nine or 10 really serious miscalculations in terms of judgment, you better make the rules pretty clear to him so that we don't inadvertently end up in a nuclear war. Right. So I'm not, I actually fully support uh, the Secretary General of NATO and I fully support President Biden. Quite frankly, that those are the two key players here, along with the Prime Minister of Great Britain and uh, the President of France, because those are the nuclear powers. When they very clearly stated what the ground rules were, because in the absence of those, dealing with the guy, a thug, who's made such poor choices, you got to make the choices really clear. Given the given the extent risk in relation to nuclear conflict, and and when it comes to the Canadian role, you've mentioned a number of times already in this short conversation the lack of capacity we have, and the I went through the defense expenditure report from NATO from 2020, and the numbers in the Canadian context appear to be that we have increased defense spending by around 40 percent, but between 2014 and 2020, and it's now about 1.45% of GDP. And that is still well below the 2% sort of target that, that NATO members are supposed to achieve and that our American allies have pushed us to achieve, certainly. That's, on my math, about a $12 billion annual shortfall. And so do you see... I'm a little... I, I'm okay spending that money to make sure we're as prepared as we can be. I'm a little bit less confident in this idea of just spending $12 billion a year without making sure it's sustainable. And so do you think we have to have a serious conversation in this country where you have, including some people further, you know, more conservative minded folks who are calling for this, that we also have a conversation about increasing taxes to pay for it. So we do have a sustainable footing and it's not this, you know, some governments come in and increase it and other governments come in and, and reduce the funding and that there's a sustainable footing for it. Um. It's easy to blame the liberals right now because they've been in power for the last seven years. And so they own this issue. And we'll talk about that in a couple of sets. But quite frankly, the previous conservative government also reaped a peace dividend. Getting back to the numbers. Um, so there's been increased allocations. But in many cases, over the last seven years, under liberal rule, the money hasn't been spent. Roughly $2 billion a year has not been spent. That was either promised, has been reprofiled lapsed, rescheduled, or moved to some mythical era in the future, which means that the capital investments that were supposed to happen have not happened. Decisions that were supposed to have been made five, six, seven years ago were not made. And with every year that you delay purchasing a fighter aircraft, for example, or a warship, or air defense systems for the army, or, 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 and there's many, many, there's dozens of major projects that have been postponed or just not acted on dithering comes to mind, the price goes up. So it's more expensive now than it used to be. Let's get back to what we need. We actually spend roughly 21, 20 percent spend, allocated more than that, but we don't spend everything that's been given to defense. And why? Because quite frankly, the system is designed to make it as complicated as possible to spend money on defensively. I've argued 
that we probably have the worst defense procurement system. You ready for this? In the world. 20 years, a lot of our programs take. That's a career for a soldier or sailor, airmen, airwomen. But let's get back to the issue of spend and what is needed and how do we pay for it. There are many duties that a prime minister and cabinet have. Some of them are written down, some of them are assumed. But it's kind of hard to argue with the fact that the principal duty of a prime minister is to do all that he or she can to ensure within reason the safety and security of their citizens. Because if you've got a Russian bear that's clawing your arm off and causing hemorrhages left, right, and center, you're not too worried about other stuff. Your immediate focus is on how do you stop the bear from biting you. And that's pretty much what we have. Every couple of decades, a variety of elected leaders say, hey, I have a vision for the future and it doesn't include things that can hurt people. So in our armed forces, we don't need the big complicated things that actually at land, sea, or air, go out and do the business, the ugly, brutal business of actually fighting for that which you believe, and more importantly, fighting for your citizens, which is exactly what the president of Ukraine is going through right now. And not only that, but hundreds of thousands of brave Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are literally fighting for their lives. Now, you'll say, well, it can't happen here. We can afford to stand back and watch. I'm not suggesting you're saying that. That's a line that was taken up by a politician just before the First World War, Dan Duran. And of course, we know full well, full well that it's a much more interconnected world than it used to be. And indeed, most of our livelihood can be either linked directly or indirectly to international trade. Knowing that, we have an alliance structure which we've committed to support. And that alliance means that you don't fight alone if you have a Russian bear or who knows who else might suddenly rear their ugly head and decide to go rabid. You've got to prepare for war if you want peace. It's an old saying, but it's true. And I'm not suggesting that Canada is not a peaceful nation. It's a double negative there, but you know what I mean. We have not done a good job in getting ready for almost this inevitable moment. Our nation and our alliance structure, and indeed the, the sort of structures and organizations that we hold dear, such as the United Nations, the World Health Organization, or the International Trade Tribunal, they're all at risk. And there are two tracks to that level of preparedness. One is total spending, and the other being making sure that the spending is delivered upon in, in to, to achieve our objectives for preparedness. So on the one hand, we have to increase the allocation, and on the other hand, we have to actually use the allocation that uh, that we've set aside. On, on the one hand, it seems like there's a, a political push at the moment, at least, and, and there is a certainly a, a willingness among Canadians to increase spending on defense. I, I hope that we have a conversation about making sure that it is sustainable. I do worry about following sort of short-term political increase in support and then jamming the budget a little bit and then more deficit spending. And, and then we go back to status quo when, when this is behind us in some way. So that's on the one side, but that's but that doesn't solve the problem. If, as you say, we aren't even spending what we've currently allocated. And so if we're really going to fix this, it's increasing total spending, but also really fixing procurement. It's not, let's just go back to total spending. Uh, over the last two years, the current government has spent what, $800 billion in deficit? So there seems to be great enthusiasm to spend great deals of money to protect Canadians. 
How many Canadians have died, by the way, of COVID? We're talking tens of thousands of Canadians. Who yeah. Died. So, so roughly, maybe, yeah, it's getting close to 40,000. And there's been, you know, obviously a, a, a multiple of that in terms of uh, who suffered ill effect as a result of having the disease. So now just think of the impact of war. Is President Zelensky concerned about COVID right now? The answer is not really. Yeah. Right? And he's suffering thousands of casualties per day, literally per day. Now, most of those are wounded. It's still happening. So how much do you want to spend to make sure that we don't have to go through what that poor guy is going through and more important, what the Ukrainian people are going through? And on the capital expenditure side, and, we, and, and I'd be curious what your views are on because there are certain capital expenditures that we have seen become a bit of a political football. The Jets are one example of this. Do you have a strong view of, of how we resolve those considerations that are the big picture items? Yeah. I mean, when I was the Army commander, chief of staff of the Army, at the height of the, well, actually, for most of the Afghan war, uh, a, a liberal prime minister and then followed by a conservative prime minister. Uh, looked a bunch of senior officers in the eye, looked the Canadian taxpayers in the eye and said, we have to get a certain amount of equipment for our troops. We need tanks, which were bought in a matter of months. We need helicopters, which were bought in a matter of weeks. We need, and the list went on and on, armored trucks, new weapons, protective equipment for the soldiers, target acquisition radars, new big guns, uh, quite, a, quite a lengthy list. The key to all of this is the Prime Minister of Canada and the Minister of Finance, who up until now, quite frankly, have done a lousy job of making sure that the defense forces have the capabilities they need. Absolutely, categorically, irrefutably. Because now that the crisis is here, the armed forces is not ready to respond in a suitable manner. Right. We saw Minister Anand in the media saying, we've given all we can. And you'd look to him and say, well, you've got many other countries that are contributing more by way of military equipment, and we've yeah. contributed a relatively small amount, as you said, although you know we could argue about the amount Canada's contributed in other ways, but on the military side, a relatively small amount, and, and then you've got the minister saying, and we've maxed out our capacity. Well, that's not her fault. She just got her the fault. job. Right. Now, she's technically, she's responsible, but she just got the job, and I think she's actually doing just about as good a job as anybody could hope for right now. But what happened over the last seven years? Let's ask some hard questions about that. And once again, it comes down to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance, both of whom decided not to give weapons to the Ukraine prior to the attack. We've contributed a minimalist amount, literally 0.01% of that which has been delivered, roughly. We're a G7 nation. Our budget is the same size as Russia's. And we've just finished a spending cycle, which is unprecedented in our history. So and how fast can we fix it, Andy? So we go into this budget and there's increased spending on defense. How quickly can that be translated into equipment that is delivered to our ally in the Ukraine? Well, it depends how quickly the prime minister and the minister of finance want to move. Right. Well, how can I say that with certainty? Because I've seen it happen twice. Once under right. Prime Minister Paul Martin, who when I was the first task force commander in Afghanistan, we came up with a shopping list. We all got it within, within weeks some pretty complicated equipment, followed by Stephen Harper, who was there for a much longer period during the height of the Afghan war and its severe fighting, 
And like I said, his ministers went out and acquired tanks within a matter of weeks. Actually, it was months, but not many months. Target acquisition radars, heavy guns, new helicopters, C-17 aircraft. C-17 aircraft from the moment the new minister arrived until we actually got it was like 150 days. So if the will is there, if you have the political leadership, Understood. the risk is there, then surely you can get done. And by the way, talk about risk. The results of the Afghan war, good or bad, were fairly low in terms of a probability of having a negative impact in Canada. What's going on right now in Russia could reorder essentially how the world works. And if it goes badly wrong, it could be uh, pretty close to Armageddon. Your points on defense spending, I I think, are, are eminently clear. We have a responsibility to do it. The crisis demands that we do it in front of us. And it's, we have every capability of doing it if we deliver the funding in, in the budget, we can act on it quite quickly. When, when it comes to other ways that Canada sees itself, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs said recently, Canada is, can, can play a convening role. And I wonder what your reaction to that was. I saw her getting dunked on in some ways by commentators, and I thought in some ways unfairly, but you might have a different take, because... I think a convening role or a brokering role, it shouldn't be that we we defer on other responsibilities and, and we neglect other responsibilities. But when I think of Pearson as an example, or I think of even Chrystia Freeland potentially around sanctions in this particular crisis and brokering with other countries from Germany to the UK, I mean, it strikes me that brokering, if, if you're good at it, now that's the other question, or do we hold ourselves out as convening, having a convening role, but we don't actually play that really strong convening role. But I, when she was getting dunked on, I thought a convening role, a brokering role is actually critically important if, if, if you can actually play that role with substance. But I don't know if you had a different take when you saw that. Well, I didn't, perhaps I, I didn't read quite that same message, but that's okay because there were three different messages, which I think she was giving in a short talk. Um, the whole idea of, I mean, she didn't negate the application or the utility of military force. She certainly didn't do that. And she's quite right when she says that, you know, we're not a, a superpower. Got that as well. We don't have nuclear weapons. Yeah, I got all that. Um, I think she was trying to make the point that Canada has contributed in other ways for now. But to quote John Manley, a fantastic liberal, when check comes due, you can't get up and go to the washroom every time. And over the last 10 years, we have not contributed in any significant way, though individual troops have done quite a bit, but maximum one or 2,000 soldiers overseas, sailors and aircrew, out of a nation which has the same size GDP as Russia. And the bill has come due, and Canadians, I, I, I think, certainly in Beaches East York at least, I, I think there's a, a willingness in a way that perhaps there hasn't always been. So if You've got political leaders who are more susceptible to follow the politics. Well, the politics are, are there for the taking now if, if you've got a, a leadership that wants to wants to do it and wants to increase spending uh, on defense. And I, we're running out of time. So uh, my, my, my final question for you is a very different one. But when we first came to Ottawa together, we spent a considerable amount of time together for purposes that neither of us really chose. <laughs> I was sad. I, I got very, I liked your couch quite a lot when I, when you were the whip and I was to be whipped. And do you, when you reflect on it, do, do you miss politics in some way? Do you, I, I don't think you miss the role of the whip in any way. And, and I, and I saw actually your comments 
after Joel Lightbound showed some independence, you actually held those comments up as courageous and you, you appreciate that independence, which I thought was, it's actually not inconsistent with the way you conducted yourself as, as, as whip. I, I thought you were the best whip we've had, frankly. Well, I miss, I miss the team. I miss the individual. Uh, I gotta be honest. There's a couple that I don't miss, but that's fine. Out of 187, it's natural, but I miss people like you and I miss the ones who have spirit and vigor and who can stand up for what they believe in. For the readers who aren't aware of it, the whip's role is um, essentially unknown off of Parliament Hill. Within Parliament Hill, it's the enforcer, uh, the one who is responsible for actually getting things done, and uh, it's a lot of the dark arts. So it's not a job which most people aspire to, but someone's got to do it. I don't miss the whip's job. Though, you know, I've run organizations of a couple of hundred, many, many, many times in my career. I mean, the last one I did was about 57,000. But um, I don't miss politics. I don't. Because I found that um, there were a variety of issues that the team I was with weren't willing to listen to. And, you know, you can either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Right. And eventually everyone has to make a choice. So am I glad I ran to represent my citizens in our news? Absolutely. Do I miss them and that role? Yes, of course. Um, do I miss politics? No. I see politics as a, as a way of making a difference in some small way where one can. And I have no doubt that you made a difference on some files, although you obviously didn't feel like you were making a difference on this file that we're talking about today. And so I actually think it's it's quite important that you've, outside of the role of Member of Parliament, you've continued to raise your voice. You have standing for a variety of reasons, including your vast experience before elected office. And you may see the change you wanted to see years ago. You may see that change coming because you've continued to raise your voice and circumstances have changed. Yeah, that is true. Um, I am... I'm very proud of Canada. I'm very proud of those who serve both in and out of uniform. You're serving now as an MP. Um, I never want a gentleman such as yourself to have to roll over as you hear a missile strike just down the road and grab your clunky old rifle and dash out the door to take on a main battle tank with a 45-year-old anti-tank system that's been contributed by Canada who can do nothing else in the short term, but either take my fellow citizens from around me back to their country and give them safety, or uh, continue to send for a very short amount of time, very small quantities, some weapons with which I can defend my family. So my job right now, my self-imposed job, is to bring attention to issues where we have to make dramatic improvement. And this starts with two people, Prime Minister of Canada, and the Minister of Finance. And they've got to get serious about defense. And they've got to get serious about actually getting capability into the hands and forget the promises of future funding in years to come. The Russian bear is here. It probably won't go away for what is a midterm activity, so several decades. And who knows who else is lurking around the corner. And those who thought that the Russians would not attack once they got up to the 200,000 mark of deployed soldiers just on the other side of the border of Ukraine, those are the things folk now who are saying, oh, don't worry, the Russian bear will 
will not go any further. The Russian bear will be satisfied with the Ukraine. Well, I'm not satisfied with the idea of the Ukraine going back to the Russian bear at all. Now, let me get back to my, I think it was one of my opening remarks. I'm a soldier, I fought in war. I've got children, cousins, uh, relatives all up and down the spectrum who fought in war. There are certain things worth fighting for. And you don't really know that until you're put into the situation, such as President Zelensky or his brave citizens, who I'm sure were very peaceful or peace-oriented and who may have been indeed pacifists. But once you have enemy tanks or missiles crashing in around your family, that changes your perspective. And for those who don't think it can happen here, maybe not tanks, but other things, beware. History is full of such folk who made mistakes. And if you don't deter your potential enemies, some of them may take advantage of you, which is exactly what the sociopath Putin has done. And for those, including yourself, who serve the country in a way that puts their lives on the line, those who serve the country in a different way, my role today and, and your role between 2015 2019, the minimum expectation for us in this role is to ensure that we are providing what those who are putting their lives on the line need to do their job. Well, Andy, thank you for, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for continuing to use your voice inside and outside of politics. And, uh, you know, I, I still think your couch was incredibly comfortable, if nothing else. And, <laughs> and, uh, and let's stay in touch where possible, you know. And uh, by the way, my compliments to you. You've always been a passionate defender of your ideas and of your constituents. And uh, though occasionally we had our growls, uh, I knew you were doing everything that you were doing because your heart is good and you're in the interest of your constituents in mind. So keep it up. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I have every expectation, by the way, that Budget 2022 will address this conversation in a serious way. And this particular moment is obviously a critical one for Ukraine. In terms of long-term defense spending, I know Minister Anand is presenting different options to Cabinet and the Finance Minister, but it also seems to me that we need a serious conversation in this country about how we pay for that which we critically need and how we ensure that we do so in a fiscally sustainable and responsible manner. As always, leave a review if you like what we're doing. You can follow me on social media at BEYNate, and you can always suggest future guests and topics at info at BEYNate.ca. Otherwise, until next time.